Good morning. Good morning. Do I have your attention? Good morning. If uh, we can start on time, we'll probably try to end on time. What do you think of that? Hey, welcome. Glad you're here. And uh, let's worship together. But if you'll join us in standing for the first song, we would appreciate it. Thank you very much. seated. Good morning. If you could open up your uh, worship guides with me for just a moment, there are a couple of uh, announcements that I do want to bring to your attention. Um, I get my stuff in order here. First, uh, there is a green slip in your bulletin that if you're new with us to this morning, if you're a guest, 
uh, we want to welcome you. And so if you would feel comfortable with putting your email address and your name on there, I'd love to get in touch with you here this week. Um, just to say thanks so much for, for coming. We, we love uh, Jesus here, and we want to, uh, uh, to be a family that worships him together. And so I'd love to say thanks for coming. If you're, uh, if you're in need of prayer at all, you can certainly put that on the green slip as well and put it in the offertory plate as it goes by here in a few minutes. Also, if you're in need of prayer, uh, there will be some folks here at the end of the service that would love to pray with you and for you. And so take advantage of that if you're able to. Um, there is going to be no Sunday school in the following dates. That will be May 21st, the 28th, and June 4th. That is our, uh, every summer we take a couple weeks off in the beginning of the summer and a few weeks off at the end of the summer. That's to give our Sunday school teachers a little break and a little bit of rest before we uh, go into the, the fall where it's a little bit more intensive. And so just mark your calendars for that. And then when uh, we come back on June 11th, there's going to be a couple of different options. There's going to be a women's study uh, that is going to be continuing that is taught by Pauline Bahachek. And uh, they'll, I believe, continue to be meeting uh, in, in the what used to be called the coat room, uh, but it's in, in the, the back of the church there. If there is uh, not enough seats, there are other options that they can move the room, but that's where it would be for now. And there's going to be a men's study as well on Sunday morning for the summer, and that'll be taught by Pastor Bob Bahachek. And so I want to encourage you uh, for Sunday school in the summer when we come back on June 11th to take advantage of one of those opportunities, or if you are somewhat new to the church, or if you are thinking about church membership, or perhaps you've been a while and you want to brush up about what is a manual about, we're going to be offering and exploring a manual for the first three weeks during Sunday school uh, hour of the, uh, when we come back, so starting on, on June 11th. So it'll be the, the three uh, consecutive weeks that we'll be doing that. Um, we'll have sign-ups here in just a couple of weeks. If you have any questions, feel free to let me know about that. The, um, the annual camping trip is coming up here in a couple weeks. Becky, is there anything that I need to know or they need to know about? There's still sign-ups available. Yes, there's still a place online. Okay. Okay. Okay, so uh, uh, said that there are still some spots open. You need to register online in order to secure a camping spot. Um, and then if you are uh, interested in just coming for the day on Saturday, on Saturday at uh, supper time, there's going to be a potluck. And then if you are camping, there will be a potluck breakfast on Sunday morning as well. So I want to just encourage you to take advantage of that and, um, and join us. It should be a good time whether you uh, stay for the full weekend of camping or whether you come just on Saturday to, to hang out. In your uh, bulletin, there's also a blue, uh, a blue envelope as well. That is for um, just a, an offering that we take once a month on the day that we do communion. And that goes to the, to the needs of the church and the community. And so if there's anything that the Lord presses on your heart to give above and beyond what you would normally give, you can put that in the blue envelope and that will be set aside uh, specifically to be meeting some needs in our church and in the community. Saturday, May 13th, we'll be having an Awana training session. I think this is going to be really exciting. And so if you uh, are interested in volunteering with Awana, you want to know what Awana even is, or if you're just looking for an exciting morning, uh, May 13th is going to be a, a great experience experience for you to check that out. Uh, we're going to be serving lunch at the end, but it'll be starting at 9 o'clock. I also want to just, uh, when, you, when you see her, um, please welcome Cindy Brigaman to the Emmanuel staff. She is going to be coming on as the, the treasurer. And so when you uh, see her, uh, congratulate her and thank her for coming on. And as well, with uh, she's going to be replacing Debbie Swanson. And on the 21st, it is the Sunday of the camping trip, but um, we're going to be honoring Debbie for her 10 years here uh, at, that she served at Emmanuel. And so we're going to be having a uh, cake reception over in room 200, and I want to encourage you all to, um, to join us for that. Also, sorry, a lot of announcements here, but this one is not in your bulletin, so if you want to write this down to remember it, next Sunday... 
during the Sunday school hour, we're going to have Shelly Bregelman and Vanessa Isaacs come, and they're going to present and uh, tell us about their mission trip that they took here recently. And so if you, if you have that time available, please come and join us for Sunday school next Sunday. I'm excited for it, and I think you should be as well. So next Sunday, uh, come and, and, and hear these ladies talk about their experiences. Um, there. Also, um, I want to let you know that Pastor Bob Bahachek is doing is doing very very well in his back uh, back surgery recovery. He wrote this note that says, "Thank you for the many many prayers, cards, meals, gifts, and visits. We're both overwhelmed with this display of love from Emmanuel. I hope to get back in the saddle soon. And serving my Jesus, He's been so faithful to us." God bless and praise his name, Pastor Bob, Pastor Bob and Pauline Bahachik. So continue praying for him as he recovers from back surgery. And um, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll continue our time of worship together. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this morning that you have given to us. We thank you that we can come here in safety and freedom to worship you. Uh, Lord, we, we want to pray uh, just for the, the many things and, and, and events that are just happening in the next month. It is a busy season. And Father, I just want to ask that you would bless those, uh, those endeavors to worship you and to create fellowship and to create community and unity here in our church. Pray for Pastor Bob, Lord, as he... Um, is recovering from his back surgery. Pray that he would, uh, as he said, be back in the saddle uh, as soon as possible. Lord, we pray for the many other um, uh, health issues in our church. Lord, we continue to pray for Lee Everson uh, for cancer treatment. Lord, we, we um, continue to pray for Liz Salstrom, Lord, in, in her treatment. Lord, we um, ask, Lord, that for anyone here who, who may be experiencing ills or for those that want to be here this morning that are not able to, we want to pray for them, and we want to ask, God, that you would heal and that you would um, show yourself to be mighty in their lives. And, Lord, as we give our hearts and as we give our, um, as we give our, our, uh, the song that's on our, on our lips to you, Lord, may you receive it, may you be honored by it, and would Christ get glory in our morning together. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, let's stand and continue singing to the Lord together.
Lord, we come to you this morning with thankful hearts. Lord, help us to have open hearts to hear your message in worship, whether it's song or word or prayer or offering. But part of the worship, Lord, just make us mindful of who you are. And Lord, thank you so much for blessing us, for keeping us, and for meeting our needs. And Lord, as we come to you now in the service, part of the offering to give, Lord, we thank you so much for your offering to us, what you give us. Lord, help us to give back with an open heart of what you bless us with so that we can serve you throughout our community. And Lord, we thank you for this opportunity. And be with us now the rest of this service, and the rest of this day, and the rest of our lives on our journey, Lord, I pray. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, yeah. 
If you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the letter of 1 John. Letter of 1 John, we're going to be looking at uh, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11 this morning. Um, and if, you've, uh, um, if you are new, um, we have been going through the letter of 1 John for the last few weeks. Um, and if you want to catch up, um, we... Uh, f- realized that there was a problem with our server on our website, so a few of you have asked, you know, why have the sermons not been posted online? We had an issue with the server. I, I got some customer service uh, worked out, and some hoping within the next week we can have uh, all those backlogged from the past five or six weeks. So if you want to catch up, uh, you can certainly do that here, um, hopefully within the next week. But for today, we are in First uh, John chapter 2 already, verses 3 through 11. Let's read it together. Uh, You know, in fact, I'm going to start, and I'm just going to read from chapter 2, verse 1, just so we can kind of get a context of what is happening here. So here in 1 John, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, this is what the Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected by this We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother, is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's pray. Father, where our eyes are not opened, would you, would you um, restore sight? Where our ears are closed, would you restore um, hearing? And Lord, would you help us to walk in light of who Christ is, regardless of wherever we're at right now? Would your word expose our hearts, and would we, uh, would we run um, to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in this time, Lord? And it's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. Well, our passage this morning is um, one in which hits at the heart of uh, many, if not all, Christians at, at one point or another, because there are seasons of life. There are seasons uh, in the faith in general. There are things that happen. There are people that let you down. There are circumstances that don't go in the way that you hoped. Uh, mistakes that we make. There are, are sins that we commit. There are uh, things that, that happen against us uh, that we feel violated by. Um, all these things, they cause little ripples in our faith. Times in which we, we, we want to push the pause button in our walk with Jesus because some things don't, don't particularly seem right. Something seems off. And one of the many reasons why the Apostle John is writing to this particular congregation is because some of them have lost the assurance that they, that they felt concerning the forgiveness of their sins. Whether it was the false teachers that came into the church of Ephesus and, and, t- and led them away doctrinally, or, well, or whether it was their lack of, of Christian maturity, or whether it, it, it has them coming to grips with their, their sinfulness or or something that may have uh, occurred, the members of the church in Ephesus were feeling insecure in regards to their faith. 
On the other hand, John is addressing a different population within the church, and this is a population that might be a bit too confident in their assurance, uh, because their confidence is based in something that, is, uh, that should provide a false sense of assurance. In either case, you and I are prone to one or two of these extremes. And regardless of where we fall within these two scenarios, the remedy is all the same. You and I need Jesus. And we need to responsibly, we need to responsibly feel assured that we have Him and that He has us. And the Apostle John lays out for us two ways in which we can, uh, that we can feel this sense of assurance. And the first of those is based on how we respond to God's Word. So our point one this morning is that we need to be assured by following, uh, following Jesus' commands. We should be assured through following Jesus' commands. You know, award-winning investigative journalists are uh, Petra Reschi, she is one of the uh, leading experts on the Italian mafia. And her book, The Honored Society, A Portrait of, Itali of Italy's Most um, Powerful Mafia, she, she delves into the personal lives and the faith of many members of, uh, of this, this group. And faith in God and living like a mafioso are, are fairly common in the strange world of the Italian mob. And for example, uh, Sicilian mafioso Marcello Fava, who later left his mafia clan, uh, he told an Italian journalist that before I, I had to kill someone, I would cross myself and I would say, Dear God, stand by me, make sure nothing happens. And, but I wasn't the only one who crossed myself before uh, I would go and, and do this job. We all prayed to God. We all did it. When Mafia boss Bernardo uh, Provenzano was arrested, the police, the police found him with five Bibles, with hundreds of his own comments in the margins of the Bible, and there were 91 sacred statues found in his house. 73 of them were of Jesus Christ. And of them all, every single one of them bore this inscription. Jesus, I put my trust in you. Uh, Michelle Greco uh, has four books in his prison cell, uh, two of which are liturgical books. Uh, one is just the Gospels, and the other is a book that is titled Pray pray. And during his trial, when they asked for an explanation of his many murders, he merely responded, I have an invaluable gift, inner peace. These members of the, the, the mafia, as reported by Petrareski, seem to have an un- shakable assurance about their standing with Jesus, that if they had uh, just prayed frequently, if they had just asked for Jesus' protection and blessing in the middle of their, their sin, uh, if they had physical representations of Jesus throughout their, their house, and if they read spiritual books, then they must be okay. But in our passage this morning, John tells us that such thinking is absolutely delusional. Look with me in verse 4. John says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. So to think that our words, actions, and behaviors can be separated uh, or even negated by an alleged faith in, in Jesus Christ is relegated to the realm of fiction. And that's easy to say when we're talking about cold-hearted members of the Italian mafia. But that's not so easy when we have to diagnose the hypocrisy that is often embedded in our own hearts. Now, throughout his entire letter here, the, uh, the Apostle John is, is fairly black and white. He's very frank and leaves little for our imaginations. 
However, we, we shouldn't be confused uh, to, see, to see what he says in, in, in verse 3 here, divorced from what he says in verses 1 and 2. Let's look at those again. He says in verses 1 and 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, in other words, John is is essentially making a a distinction here. He is not referring to the true Christian who is fighting the good fight of faith, who is trying to live for Jesus' honor and glory, and yet uh, from time and time, uh, um, from time to time, he, he stumbles into sin, uh, willful or not. He is not uh, referring to that. Rather, he is referring to a group of people that has one of two mindsets. The first is either they don't take God and, and sin seriously and its consequences, or he's talking to a group that they view God's grace too cheaply. Now, last week I, I, I had uh, laid out what it means to disregard sin and its consequences, and so in the next week, if you want to check that out, you can, you can get a little more detailed on that. So I want to focus really on, on the second aspect here, and that's on the people who, who tend to take God's grace too cheaply. They, they rightly see that Christ died on the cross for their sin and that he suffered the penalty that they deserve for, uh, for their sin. But then they go on to say that once we move from that profession of faith, it no longer matters how we live. We can live however we, we want to. I learned of this firsthand a couple, a number of years ago when I had realized that, that a church that we were attending at the time was supporting a, a missionary who, at least on his website, seemed to espouse this idea. And so one day, Julie and I, we took him and his wife out to, out to lunch, and I started asking him, him some questions. And through a lot of words, I ended up uh, understanding his argument as basically this. In order to be saved, you must trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Well, fair enough. I, I, I can be with him on that. But then he goes on to say, once you trust him as Savior, then you can choose whether or not to make him Lord of your life. But it's not necessary. Once you trust in him as Savior, then you can choose whether or not to repent but it's not necessary. Once you trust in him as Savior, you can have the option of being his disciple. But again, it's not necessary. All these things are good and should be sought, but they're not necessary for salvation. You can have Jesus as Savior, but you don't at all have to make him Lord. And as I pressed a little bit, his wife chimed in and gave me a hypothetical um, but it was clarifying as to what they were saying. She said that if a child uh, were to make a decision for Christ, say at the age of eight, but then their lives from eight until whenever uh, consisted of nothing but living in sin and a complete disregard for God and, and anything that has to do with God, then we can still say that they are without a doubt saved. Friends, we have to understand the biblical truth that we are not saved by our works. We affirm that. We are absolutely saved by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. But what we need to see here is that our works are evidence that Jesus has delivered us from our sin. And what John tells us this morning is that if there's a disconnect between our behavioral patterns and our profession of faith, then there is something seriously wrong somewhere. Whatever, uh, whoever does not take sin or its consequences seriously or who, who views God's grace too cheaply not only degrades God in his word, but John himself here says that that person is a liar and that the truth isn't even in them. In other words, this person is not genuine and probably doesn't know God at all. 
This is difficult because we must come to grips with the understanding of when we live in blatant disregard for God's commandments, we have no reason for assurance. But on the other hand, verse 3 tells us, by this we know, we know that we've come to know him. In other words, John is telling us how we can have full confidence that we know God. It is worth stating here that, that John brings up this idea of knowing God. He's not talking about an intellectual acknowledgement of who God is, that you could go on religious jeopardy and be able to win the final round. The word that John uses here, and it's used throughout the New Testament in many ways, to know, it, it, it refers to an intimate relational knowledge with someone. It's the difference between knowing a lot about a celebrity figure or a historical figure and uh, compared with knowing your spouse or your child. There's a difference in your knowledge there. One, you know them, know who they are. The other, you know them. And so here John says that we can have full assurance that we have a, a knowledge, a relationship with Jesus. And he says that we can know that if we keep his commands. Another way to put that is if we are obedient to, the, to God's word. And, and, if, and if obedience is a tough word for us to, to hear, we could just simply say that uh, uh, assurance is given if we follow Jesus in the way that he walked, which is what verse 6 tells us. And again, I have to say, because it's so easy to become an accidental Pharisee that our obedience to Jesus does not save us. When we think that our, our obedience to Jesus is the basis by which we are saved, we're doing the exact opposite. We are creating a false sense of assurance. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and, and our obedience is, is the evidence by which that is shown. This assurance now, John adds in verse 5, produces something unexpected. Look with me in, in verse 5. Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Now, this, this truly the love of God is perfected is sort of a perplexing verse to to nail down what John is meaning. And perhaps John means to be a bit ambiguous because we could say that, the, that, that God's love is being perfected in us by saying that God is perfecting our love in general or that our love towards God is being perfected. So there's a lot of different ways that we could look on it. And perhaps John is being intentionally ambiguous here. But based on the context here, it seems right to see that John is saying that, uh, that our love for God is increasing. So that's what he means by being perfected. It is increasing. Our love for God is increasing as we serve and obey him. And isn't it true that when you give of yourself, when you uh, lay down your life in such a way in which you are living for someone else or something, uh, you don't think less of that person or that thing, but rather that, that gets highlighted in your life. That when you give yourself to someone or a cause that somehow is elevated in your mind. And here, uh, John is saying that as we serve and give ourselves for the Lord, our love for him ought to be perfected, ought to be completed uh, as we give ourselves to him and as we mature and conform to his, the image of his son. Now, being the member of an Italian mob uh, while doing religious activity is probably not the best way to assure uh, yourself of your salvation. Our assurance, rather, is secured by Christ's work on the cross and is demonstrated by our, uh, our love growing for Him and following His commands and living for the pleasure uh, of Him and for His glory. Now, John 
is about to launch into the second means by which our evidence is found. But first, look at the shift that John uh, makes in his wording here. And it, it's found in verses, uh, um, uh, verses 7 and 8. Whereas in verses 3 through 6, notice that John refers to God's commandments in the plural. Meaning the Ten Commandments or however you want to look at it from that. And now in verses 7 through 11, he, he makes a shift and he reduces it to the singular. And, and I take that to mean, based on what he says here and what he's going to say, is that God's commandments can be summarized entirely and our assurance can be found um, evidenced in the overarching principle of what it means to keep God's commandments. And that's found in one word, and that's love. So that's our second point here, that we need to be assured through walking in love. Be assured through walking in love. And for all of us here, um, uh, like I said, like I put up there, is that we should be assured by learning to walk in love because we're always growing in this. Verse 9, look with me. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, I'm, I'm going to confess that I had a, a fairly difficult week trying to figure out what in the world is John talking about here and how these verses fit together in light of the whole. And not only that, but what is, what is the extent to which John is, is thrusting his argument here, particularly in verses 9 and 11. And at this point, uh, John is no longer dealing with the false teachers who have left the church. He's not dealing with those arguments right now. Rather, he is dealing with a pervasive issue within the church as it stands. And he is trying to help nurse this congregation into unity. And where I ran into the most difficulty was under, trying to understand the definition and the extent of the, the use of his word hate in these verses. Because hate is one of those words that is really hard to nail down especially in our current contemporary climate. Because the word hate, uh, it's used really in a couple different ways in our uh, current vernacular. The first is that, that we use it very, very uh, flippantly, very carelessly. Oh, I hate when that happens. Oh, I hate this or I hate that. I hate Brussels sprouts. You know, we'll say those kinds of things, not thinking about what are we saying when we're actually talking about hate. And, and I fear that right now in our, in our uh, cultural climate, there's a much stronger way that our culture uses this word as well. Uh, it, it, it's a buzzword that seems to be thrown around without caution. It, it's used not as a verb to describe a personal feeling towards something. I, 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 I hate Brussels sprouts. By the way, I like Brussels sprouts. I'm not getting on them. I'm just using them as an example. But um, increasingly, it is being used as an accusation, minimally, and a weapon, formally. For example, there are certain tribes in our culture that will take one aspect of their lives or their, their personalities and they will root their identity in those things and they will say, this is who I am. Uh, if you don't agree with me, if you don't support me 100% in who I am, then that must mean that you hate me. And they will charge anyone with any sort of hesitation as hateful bigots. That sort of rhetoric is nothing but bully tactics. And that's, uh, but it shapes, however, the way that we think about the word hate. 
So now, we go back to these verses, 9 and 11, and you can see why I wrestled with this word the way that I did. Is it biblically equivalent to bigotry or loathing someone? Because John is talking about the members of a church that he loves dearly, that he pastored until he was sent off to, a, to an exile on an island. And surely as members of the church, they're not so divided and so hateful toward each other that they want to constantly hurt each other or potentially kill each other. Perhaps John is exaggerating. So, I looked up every instance in the New Testament on the word hate. And it's somewhat ambiguous. So I narrowed it down to how does John particularly use it in other writings that he has. And, and he wrote a big, long gospel. I encourage you to read it. And he uses it many times in his gospel. And so I think he's still being somewhat ambiguous until I landed in John chapter 12. And in John chapter 12, Jesus says something very interesting to shed light on what I think John is getting at. And he's talking to his, uh, his disciples and explaining to them what it means to be a disciple. Now see what John says, what Jesus says now in John chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever, what? Hates his life. Woo! Excuse me. Sorry. have a little cold here. Um, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now I thought, now we're finally getting somewhere. Because the issue here in Jesus' mind is not asking us to intensely dislike ourselves to be bigots against our own persons. Rather, Jesus is looking for a mindset that thinks less of themselves. He is, in essence, looking for people who express a self-disregard. They aren't looking out for themselves. And when we place that in understanding of what John is saying here now, it makes perfect sense if you've been around a church for any sort of time. Because churches are filled, unfortunately, with people who don't regard others very highly. There are plenty of people in churches who gravitate towards those who they naturally get along with and naturally can be jovial with, but they have uh, an, an utter indifference towards anyone else. And this indifference, this ambivalence, is no more prominent than when it, than when it comes uh, against people who are particularly needy. If you want to get at the heart of the biblical definition of hate and where John is going here, it's this, blatant disregard or not caring about others in the church. It comes in a mindset that says, that person needs help with that? Oh, somebody else can do that. That person needs financial assistance again? Why can't that person get it together? They get a job. Or that person is struggling with that? Sheesh, I hope that they can get help because I have nothing I can offer them. I know that person is new, but someone else can go and greet them. Now we can see how verses 9 through 11 hit home. Look again in verse 9. Whoever says that he is in the light and is indifferent toward his brother or sister is still in darkness. You see, hypocrisy 
is not just in the sins of commission, which means the, sin, the, the, uh, the things that we say and the things that we do are in opposition, but hypocrisy is also found in the sins of omission, which is the things that we know we should do, but don't. And failure to love, care for, and serve gives us no assurance of hope. It does give us assurance. It gives us assurance that we're in the darkness. Verse 11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And if you've ever been in a completely dark room, you understand where John is getting at here. Because though you'll have a general idea of where you think you need to go, you can't see the obstacles that are in front of you. You're going to end up with bruised shins and, 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 and stubbed toes. And the same thing is true when we are not loving each other in the way that we are called to. We have spiritual bruises on our shins and spiritual stubbed toes. So we can't have assurance when we're being indifferent, when we're hating our brothers and sisters in such way. We can't have assurance, however, when we display the opposite. Look at verse 10. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now, we will not get to the definition of love uh, until... Um, June 11th, a month from now, when we look at uh, chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. But what we need to see now is what love evidences, what love produces. Uh, it, it evidences in its way that we are in the light. Chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that, that we have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, he, provi he provides the result here that God sheds insight in how we can navigate through life. We can see spiritual pitfalls before they happen. We can love people well, and we can love people wisely instead of selfishly using them to get whatever it might be. There is no cause for stumbling for those who have learned to walk in love by imitating the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You can have assurance today, but it takes a little bit of self-assessment. Maybe you're not measuring up to where you'd like to be. And if that's you, another thing that you can be assured of is that there is grace and there is mercy, there is hope, and there is time. And there is no better time than right now to repent of ignoring God's commands or cheapening His grace. There is no better time than right now to confess to God and say, I am not loving like I should. The Lord Jesus Christ died for those sins in the same exact way that He died for all of our other sins. And we can have assurance today of his forgiveness by repenting, trusting, perhaps even for the first time this morning, that in Jesus, trusting in him as our Lord and personal Savior. Let's do that, friends. Every one of us can flee to the Lord Jesus this morning. So let's go to him. Father, Lord, there are so many ways that me included, that we just walk in ways that are contrary to your best. Lord, I want to ask that you would work on our hearts. I want to ask that you would expose those areas of our heart that aren't pleasing to you. Lord, I want to ask that as you expose that light in the darkness, Lord, that we would not be like those people that Jesus talk about, talks about in John, where the people 
love the darkness and hate the light and they do everything that they can to not have that darkness exposed. But Father, I pray that you would just break the chains of bondage that some of us have to things, God. That you'd be doing a great work of mercy in our hearts. That we would return to you, Lord. That we would love you. That we would see you rightly. We wouldn't cheapen your grace. That we would see the cross as the most costly thing that you did for us. And the most costly thing that's happened in this world. Lord, may we walk and learn to walk in love, Lord. Because so many of us, me included, God, we stumble as we walk in that regard. And so, Father, do that work in our hearts. We plead. We beg, and as we come to the table now, Father, would you renew our hearts and help us respond rightly to what you would have for us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Every month on the first Sunday of the month, our church celebrates um, the Lord's Supper. It's a time that we come together to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. Shedding his blood, his body being broken, bones not necessarily, but body broken. And we remember. And friends, we've talked about some hard stuff this morning. And so this is a good time that we can come together to Remember who we are, who we were, and who we can be in Christ Jesus. So as we take this time this morning, let us reflect on the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us return to Him. Let us give ourselves to Him. This is a table that we come together as a family of God. You don't have to belong to this church to partake, all you need to do is come to Jesus with the understanding that nothing in your hands you bring, simply to his cross you cling. This is a place where those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ come together. Now, we uh, typically hand out the bread, and we hold on to those, and then we pass out the juice, and we hold on to those until we can take together. If you're here this morning and you haven't yet received the Lord Jesus, let these elements pass by you. Look at them. See the visual representation that they, that they mean. This isn't literally the body and blood of Jesus Christ. These are mere symbols meant to show us what he did. And if you are in that spot where you haven't yet received him, you can receive him this morning. And I ask that you would do that. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, when he took the bread, he gave thanks. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer before we distribute. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. Lord, help us to reflect. Your word tells us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that whoever therefore eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner is guilty of condemning, uh, guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Lord, let us come to this table in faith. Let us come to this table in gratitude. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that I ask this. Amen. I'm going to ask those who are serving, please come forward and we'll distribute the elements.
Paul writes in the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 11, For this I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord, we do proclaim your death. We proclaim your resurrection, and we anxiously await your return. Help our hearts to be conformed to you. May we walk in love. May we do this for, the, for your pleasure and for your glory. It's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Have a blessed afternoon. Thank you.